Hi, Tom Panos, John McGrath, Million Dollar Agent. Hi, Johnny. How are you Hello, going? Tom. Good to see you. How's life? Very good, actually. That's really good. I'm actually enjoying the colder weather. I don't know if all our listeners are getting it in their part of the world, but in Sydney there's been a bit of winter, an early winter come across us, and I find it quite pleasant. Yeah, a lot of people say they sleep better during the winter, John. They, you know, and they like, they just prefer this, like it's not too cold. It just seems to be the perfect temperature for people. Yeah, it's interesting. And you know, I, I sort of, part of my daily rituals, I go for a little early morning walk and sort of listen to some things like these podcasts and audio books and. I've noticed that you know now it's dark earlier, so I I go at five thirty, and it used to be kind of light at five thirty. Now it's pretty dark, and the number of people that you used to see, there's almost no one now. So it's funny how you know people sort of uh, take an easy way out when it gets a little bit colder and a little bit darker, rather than putting on a tracksuit. People sort of sleep in bed a bit longer. Yeah, it's uh, I'm sure there were less people than uh, January. January one, a lot of people started off really strong, didn't they? <laughs> Exactly. Uh, John, today we're going to do a few topics on this podcast. One of the ones I want to focus on is three biggest mistakes an agent makes. There's not three, there's probably a hundred, but let's narrow it down to three. John, the ones that come to mind, let's start off. Number one. Well, I think, Tom, communication is key in any business, any sales area, and real estate, it's critical. And I don't think agents communicate enough. They, they often wait for good news or some news, so it can be a week between the times they chat with the vendor. So my ritual was every day I need to speak to the vendor to give them an update. Now I had a twenty, I had a career which was a twenty-eight days on market career, so I was able to do it, I think, quickly and effectively. And some people say to me, well, you know, my listings are on the market for four months. Well, maybe if you spoke to your clients a bit more regularly, there wouldn't be four months; it'd be mm. a month. So I think to really manage people's expectations have people feel supported and comfortable and confident that you're on the job you need to be in regular contact so my I guess my um, process Tom was daily contact on the phone weekly face-to-face meeting followed up by a weekly written report and I found that worked really well so I think one of the key mistakes is people don't communicate enough with their clients you very rarely John get a vendor saying your level of service and communication is more than I want is it? But you do get the other way around. Well, I've had it once in, in 32 years of real estate where I actually had a client that said, all I want is a weekly email from you. I'm busy. I travel the world. I like email. Um, just send me one. And, and literally, I sent one. And we sold it. It was a $3 million home. We sold it at the auction through that matter. So I'm, I'm very cognizant that if someone wants a different communication strategy, that's fine. But you're right. That's one person in a, a long career thus far that, that said to me, don't talk to me regularly. John? And people dig themselves into a pattern. It, is it strange? The, the more you resist making that contact with that difficult vendor, the vendor that you don't have news for, the vendor that you've got bad news, it's very strange because momentum um, digs in, and that is because you haven't spoken to them, there's a likelihood that the longer it goes, the less likely you'll speak to them because you've got this awkward embarrassment and hopefully you're just hoping that someone comes to the rescue and solves this communication barrier. Which they rarely do. No, I agree. Um, And you know, you used the word early on in that little response, difficult vendor. I think most vendors become difficult because of our lack of activity and often our lack of uh, transparency. And that doesn't mean we don't tell the truth, but you've got to tell people what you're doing. You've got to let them know what to expect, manage their expectations and talk to them frequently and honestly about it because otherwise they're in the dark. So I don't think most vendors start off being difficult, a few exceptions. There are some people that are pricklier than the rest, but 
generally spe speaking, people really want to know what's happening with my property, what's your plan, they want to see you carry your plan out, they want feedback as to where are we on track or off track. So I think that's the first one. Um, the second one that you and I speak about a bit, <clears throat> which we think is really critical, is this, what I often refer to as an exaggerated need to be liked. We're salespeople, we love interactions with people, we love you know, being liked, we all want to be liked and loved in our lives, but the reality is in sales, you have to be able to deal with rejection. You have to be able to say no. You have to not be, and, and I use the word carefully, exaggerated need to be liked. Because I think there's nothing wrong with wanting your clients to like you, your customers to like you, your buyers, your sellers. I think that's all fine. But it's when you really are desperate for that, that um, feedback and need Verse, you know, here's the deal, Tom, if you want to buy the home, there's the process, there's the price, I'd love to sell it to you, if not, we'll find you something else, without feeling the, you know, the pain of someone saying, well, I'm not going to pay that, or I'm not going to list with you. You know, I, I just, I've, I've missed thousands of listings in my life, but fortunately in the process of that, I've listed many thousands as well. So I think you've got to get over that pain of rejection, that fear of being rejected. And sometimes, John, it's not just the liked of a client, but it's the approval and feeling as part of a group in your office by other salespeople. Um, and I think Marcus Ciminello said it on that video, worry about establishing yourself in the market, not in your office. And a lot of people try and establish themselves in the office. They want to be liked by other people. They've got this mental dilemma that they want to go out and do things that others aren't doing, but then they think that they're going to be judged as being not part of the team. Um, how do you see that in your eyes as young people, John, that you know come into a business and that need to be approved by their peers? Yeah, look, I think it's the same principle, and there's nothing wrong with you wanting to get on with people you work with. In fact, that's really what should be all of our goal. But sometimes you've got to make a call and you've got to do something that may not be popular to everyone. Now, if you're operating within total integrity, which I'm hoping every listener is because we talk about it all the time, you shouldn't be overly concerned that someone is not going to be happy with that. Um, so I, I think you, you're very right. You've just got to, you've got to do the right thing all the time. You should have a goal to have a, a good, harmonious team environment if at all practicable. But if someone gets their nose out of joint because you're selling three times the listings and you're jumping on the phone and prospecting all the time and, and so forth, I think you've just got to move on and, and just do it anyway. Okay. John, the other one that comes up, and I'm mindful of this because I've got one of the people that's worked with me for a long time, he's moving from working um, at a structured environment to moving into the world of really working for themselves. Because, John, when you get into real estate, whether you're an owner of a business or whether you're going in as a salesperson, bottom line is you're working for yourself. Yeah. Um, so... One of the things that I know is that when you're an employee in a large corporation that has procedures and manuals and structures in place, that's quite different to the freedom that comes when you've got free time, no structure that requires you to handle how you spend your 50, 60 hours a week. Can we talk a little bit about the importance of time management, prioritising, structure, ideal weeks? Yeah, oh, I think that's such a critical point because you're right. We're all self-employed in real estate um, and we don't generally have the close scrutiny and supervision that you have in other industries. So it's a trap for young players because I think on one hand it's nice. The flexibility, if you've got a 
drop into the shops, you've got to pick your kids up, you know, you can always handle some of that, but some people actually take that to the next level and therefore their sales decline and their numbers suffer. So I think what you've got to do is have a structure, and we've talked a lot on this podcast series about ideal weeks. You need to have certain key activities that are plugged into certain times of the day and you make appointments with yourself and you've got to keep yourself on track. So I would encourage people to have the ideal week. I'd also encourage people to be held accountable by a coach or a sales agent or a principal. It's, you just really need to have that information and you need to have someone hold you accountable to that. So I think that's, that's really critical. You know, we, we talk about routine and whether it's routine of doing a walk at 5.30 in the morning and ringing your vendors at 8 a.m. and calling your pipeline prospects at 9 a.m. and so on and so forth. Whatever that is, I think a routine really gets you rolling. It's just a nice thing to have. I love routine. your line, John. Routine will set you free. Routine sets you free. I have a I have great pleasure in the fact that about 50 or 60% of my business life is, is very well structured which means as things pop up, I can fill in the other 40 or 50% with priorities and topical, spontaneous things that have to be dealt with on a day or weekly basis. But if I wasn't doing that other 50 or 60%, like a lot of people, I'd end up being a bit chaotic and a mess and not getting my priorities done. So I think that's you know it's a really good point you make about the, one of the beauties of real estate is the freedom and one of the great challenges of real estate is the freedom that it gives you. Because three months down the track, if you take that freedom you know, too far, you're going to end up not making sales. So I think that's critical. The, the other one I was just going to talk about, Tom, is, and this is a specific one, and again, we've spoken about it before, but I think this disease of agreeing with everything the client says and potentially overvaluing their property because they say a figure and you don't want to say another figure or debate that figure or or really check that figure out, you just say, yeah, that, that sounds good, Tom, a million dollars sounds good. And then you can spend the next three months wasting your time um, being stressed out by a vendor that's saying, where's my offer of a million dollars when you actually knew it was probably worth 900 to start with. But yeah, you didn't actually have the courage. And we've talked about, you know, three or four times a day, 20 seconds of courage can change your life. This problem is not going to go away, John. Vendors are always going to have a differing view to you on value of property in the early days. The vast majority, and I, I, for me, it's about eighty percent. And they're not always wrong, by the way. Sometimes we can surprise ourselves on the upside as to how well a property can go in the market. But often a vendor thinks, well, you know, this is probably worth nine fifty, hopefully. So I'm going to say a million because that'll get the agent thinking a higher figure. And the neighbour said it should be worth at least a million, and they have all these things, and they, they go. And unless the agent says, well, you know, Tom, that's not impossible. I can understand why you targeting that but here's where the comparables are at and you need to embark on a journey knowing that this is what other similar properties have been sold at so what are you going to do if this is the end value how are you going to respond to that have a have a a conversation which doesn't take away the hope or opportunity that a better price could come along as i said often it does but i think that's really critical from my um, side that overvaluing properties is a waste of time it frustrates clients it costs clients and agents money whereas you've just got to get better at handling the discussion around pricing john what do you say to the listeners that have been instructed and educated that what you should do is never the term that i heard one or two weeks ago was never condition without control which meant sign it up and then more or less work on price with a vendor then what do you say to the people that have been instructed which is just list the thing 
because if you don't list it, another agent's going to list it and give them hope, and then all you do is you've got the listing signed up and just actually go off and put them through a process and they will come down in price. What's your response to those people that have heard that? I think it's extremely old, outdated real estate thinking, and yet I acknowledge that it still happens to a, a reasonably high degree in the industry. I think you have to ask yourself, honestly, do you feel that's the right approach? Most people, when they have a good whole cold look at it, they say, no, I don't think that's the right approach. Therefore, you've got there's really only two things you can do. You can, A, speak to your vendor, principal, sales manager, and say, look, this is not working for me. I've got to tell you, Tom, I'd rather, out of the 10 ones I go for, I'd rather get five of them at the right price and be totally honest with someone and enjoy the selling process and really feel passionate about my transparency rather than get all 10 and then you know kind of start conditioning which is a horrible word, but it's used in this industry, conditioning people down. That just doesn't fit for me. And either the principal's going to accept that that's going to be your process, which could be different from your colleague, or I think without sounding silly, you've got to leave because this is your career, this is your life. You're going to do it for the next 5, 10, 25 years, whatever it is. Do you really want to turn up for work every day telling lies to people or exaggerations or agreeing with something that you actually don't agree with? So I think you've really got to, um, you've got to pull that back and you've got to make a stand around integrity and say, well, what am I prepared to do? The interesting thing, Tom, I'm, I'm finding is that more and more agents that are writing the big figures, this is exactly the strategy they're adopting. It used to be in the old days and, you know, sort of when you and I started, that we knew there was a lot of people that were not telling the truth that were earning big dollars. And I think, you know, for whatever reason that happened nowadays with communication and social networking and everyone talking and information being available to people so they know who's been telling the truth and who hasn't, I think nowadays the agents that are taking a stand and saying, you know, I'm going to work with integrity. If someone doesn't want to hear my advice or doesn't want to hear the truth, I'm okay for them to go elsewhere, but I'm going to give my clients the right advice. So I'm, I'm finding very pleasantly that almost every high achiever I'm coming across is, a, is adopting that, which is a, a new wave of transparency in the industry, which is... Okay. John, to finish off here, I think it would be relevant that we touch on, uh, since we're talking about, you know, uh, listings and uh, what a good one is and what you'd be looking for in a relationship with a vendor, clean business. Mm -hmm. When I use that term, what does it mean to you, John? What is clean business? So for me, the tangible bits of clean business are right pricing, which means we have exactly what we've just said, Tom. We have uh, addressed the issue of price with honesty and transparency, given them comparables, and had a robust discussion around likely price the market will see it at. So I think that's important. Two is right marketing. My view is you can't get a premium price, as we've said on this series before, without exposing your property to the world at large. Traditional media, online media, signboards, local papers, realestate.com, domain.com, all of the things that whatever works in your area, because only by exposing it to all those channels are you going to find every buyer. So I think clean business needs marketing, which is paid for by the vendor. Why do I say that? Because if it's not paid for by the vendor, it's not going to be the best marketing possible. You'll cut corners, you'll do a really El Cheapo package because you'll say, look, I'm only going to uh, spec $500 here, Tom, just because I can't afford to lose any more than that. That's not the right thing by your vendor. And if you do pay for larger packages, you'll go broke. I've seen agents over the years, so have you, companies that have thought that paying for the business and funding the vendor was going to be the right way. Well, none of them are around nowadays. So we as a company certainly don't pay for any advertising. So 
that's important. The next one is clean fee, the right fee. Um, there's too much discounting happening. And when I say that discounting, if you're doing a great job and you're resourcing your business and you're providing great service to everyone, you deserve to be paid what I think is a very fair fee. Now, in this day and age, in this country, I think that's a range somewhere in the 2 to 3% range, roughly. People have to make their own assessment as to what works for them and what value they think they're adding. As I go around the world and talk to other countries, and you go to New Zealand just across the, uh, across the way there, and, and a lot of there at 3%, up to 4%. You go to America, it's 5 6 7%. You go to the UK, it's 2.5%, 3%. You go to a lot of other places and, and our fees are actually quite modest on a global scale. And yet I think the Australian agents are amongst the best in the world at marketing, selling. Of course, auctioning is quite unique to our country. So I think that you know, you've got to have the right price range, the right fee, the right marketing paid for by the vendor. If you have those things, you've actually really set yourself a great platform for clean business. If you don't have those things, you're going to have a messy portfolio of listings. Mm. Overpriced, this vendor owes you money, that one's at 1%. It becomes very, very messy. So my view is work out what are your standards, what are your recommendations, and stick to them, and really don't compromise. Okay, John, thank you so much. I think you've summed it up well. If a vendor controls the price, if a vendor controls the marketing, if a vendor controls the fee, I think we're going to have a tough two months ahead of you. Good, clean business. Until next time, Tom Panos, John McGrath, Million Dollar Agent. 